Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Yugambeh people, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. My name's Nicole Bennett and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We're one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So let's take a minute from our busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode 19 of 2022. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Stefan from the CSIRO. He is a principal scientist in foresight and strategy, working in the field of strategic foresight in Australia's National Science Agency. He's This is the second time he's joined me on the podcast, and he's devoted his career to helping governments, companies and communities comprehend patterns of change so they can make wiser choices and secure better futures. He has academic qualifications from the University of Queensland and University of New England in the fields of geography, economics and decision theory. Stefan has published widely in the international scientific literature. His work involves a combination of original research and the provision of consulting and advisory services. One of my favourite publications from Steph is Global Megatrends, which details a set of significant trends which are affecting our people, places and planet into the future. And I recently saw uh, CSIRO publish a new mega trends document and that's the reason why I wanted to have Stefan on the podcast today he's a lead co-author of this new um, document and I think I'll I'll just uh, throw to you now and say how are you today I'm really well thanks Nick and thanks for having me on the show again I love uh, hustle and bustle it's a great uh, great show so it's an honor be honor to be on it with you <laughs> awesome and uh, I, look I I'm a sucker for your publications as soon as I see something that comes out especially around mega trends as a planner that loves looking to the future you know I, I need to know all about it so I'm so thrilled that you're able to join me and, and accepted the invitation again to be on the show can you tell me a bit about the report that you released last week on the seven mega trends that will shape the next 20 years? Certainly, Nick. So we started this work actually back in 2009 was when I first seriously got engaged in doing it in CSIRO. So we've been doing it for quite a while. And uh, I was initially looked asked to look at the future for CSIRO as we plan our own science and research uh, agenda out into the future. Our basic challenge is how do we ensure we're investing in, in the science and technology solutions that matter the most for future Australians. And I was tasked with trying to flesh out what the environment might look like 10 years out into the future. And we reviewed a lot of different methodologies. We looked at shell scenario planning, but we landed on this concept of megatrends by US academic John Naisbitt. These trajectories of change occurring at economic, social, environmental, legal, technological trends, which are smaller and come to give, a, give this bigger, bigger megatrend. And we, we opened up a website for all our staff. We got 4,500 scientists across all different fields of science technology, including the social sciences and business analytics and strategy type people. And they were able to put trends onto the website and um, edit each other's trends and build a knowledge base about trends. And we've effectively, in various ways, been building that trends database ever since. Now, we released our first version of the report in 2012. Um, became the most downloaded thing on the CSIRO website ever, actually, in history. 
uh, and we've just released the 2022 report, which the communications team has now reached 14 million pairs of eyes. So it's wow. it's gone wide around the world, <coughs> pardon me, with a lot of views, and um, it really is a narrative of the future based on evidence about how things are changing. Yeah, amazing. So, so how are the mega trends identified? You've kind of gone through that, that you you the scientists all come together. Yeah. And and so was this sort of a different process, given that this is kind of a 10-year review of that first report? Was there sort of something you did differently with identifying these trends? Yeah, look, it's maturing, certainly. And I think, um, you know, I like to use the analogy of a mega trend to an ocean current. You know, being a Gold Coast resident, you'll know about rips on the beach um, and rips are deadly. Uh, they are the big, biggest killer on our beaches by far. Um, but at the same time, surfers love them. They get you out to through the white water to the break. So they're these powerful currents. And it's actually, if you stand on a beach and look at a beach, it's pretty hard to work out what is and what is not a rip. Mm. And I think it's a good analogy to the concept of a megatrend. There are powerful forces that are happening around your career, around your company, your organisation, your family, that are going to impact you into the future. And your ability to comprehend what they are uh, allows you to manage the the upside like a surfer mm-hmm. does the rip but it also lets you mitigate the risk and our analysis is all about helping you when you look at the beach to be able to determine you know what's going on and where so that you can you can have a good day at the beach basically so that's the the nature of the analysis we do now in the early work we where it's matured is that since we did that first report, we've done about 30 or 40 studies on sport, tourism, the future of work, the future of transportation. We've looked at a lot of different areas. And every time we do a study like that, we generate trend information, but we feed it back into our databases and our knowledge. And uh, as we got into the pandemic and post-pandemic world, we thought it was time to have another look at it and put out a, a refreshed version of that report because uh, we've we've certainly seen the trajectory of change uh, change alter from what it was previously. And I'd say in some ways it's been a bit of a more sombre affair putting this report together. Things that we mm. were talking about that were possible in climate change or plausible have now become live realities for a lot of Australians through the bushfires and the floods, which have had such profound impact. Uh, but we are, we are seeing uh, things also like the pandemic too is not something we're, we're speaking about as a risk of infectious diseases. It's now a um, lived experience for a lot of Australians. So as we look into the future, there certainly are challenges, but still there's a lot of reasons for optimism around our advanced scientific and technological capabilities that we've we've developed. Yeah, okay. Let's get into the the mega trends. So there's seven of yep. them. That's um, right. Let me just rattle them off, and then I'd love to sort of get the the little sales pitch or the the pitch on each of them. It's probably not yes. a sales pitch when they're a bit negative. Some of them, <laughs> but um, adapting to climate change is number one, as it should be. Number two is leaner, cleaner, and greener, which I love. Right. Number yep. three is the escalating health imperative. Number four is geopolitical shifts. Yes. Number five is diving into digital, which is an interesting way of saying digital, I think. Yes. Um, number six is increasing autonomous, yes. increasingly autonomous, I should say. Correct. And then number seven is unlocking the human dimension, which yep. is cool. All yeah. right. So can we start at any one of those? I guess climate well, change is the number one. but yeah. um, And it did find its way to the top of the tree because it, it's it's one of the most significant changes in our narrative and one of the biggest challenges we look going forward. And it mm. is about adaptation at the beginning because even though mitigation yeah. is really important and is dealt with in that second megatrend, leaner, cleaner, greener, the adaptation imperative is there in that uh, one of the data sets I look at on climate change is parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at Cape Grim in Tasmania. It's in okay. on the western coast of Tasmania. It's a meteorologically significant 
significant measurement station that CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology maintain. And it gives us a pretty accurate reading of how well we're doing in terms of greenhouse gas mitigation. And if you look at this graph, it's, it's online, you can Google it and you can see it. You can see this, this graph is not going anywhere, but up pretty, pretty steeply since 1980. And despite all of what we're hearing, all of the talk on, on reducing emissions and all of the important activity on reducing emissions, the reality is the concentration of carbon dioxide, the fundamental problem here is continuing to rise. So even if we do brilliantly on climate change now, uh, in terms of emissions reductions, we are in for a lot of more frequent and severe extreme weather. And this is an, a reality that we need to, to speed up the adaptation to. We don't have oodles of time to now get ready for, to, for floods, for fires. For, for extreme heat, it's coming. And if, you know, as I've talked to scientists on this, the two that really st stand out, it all matters, but the two standout ones are extreme heat, which is associated with the highest level of mortality already. Heat, if you take all forms of natural disaster and combine them, the number of people that are killed by natural disasters, uh, all of them put together is still less than extreme heat on its mm -hmm. own. Yeah. Heat waves and extreme heat, and there's a there's a immediate component to extreme heat, heat stroke, which I've actually I suffered. Obviously, didn't die from it, but I got pretty unwell. I did a paving mm -hmm. job in in 40 degrees Celsius, and uh, became really quite intensely. I should have known better, but I became intensely Living unwell. Living the research. That's right. It was a, <laughs> a self-inflicted experiment, oh, but uh, don't don't do it. And it didn't matter how much water I, I must have drunk about 10 litres of water. I, it wasn't helping. My my organs were starting to cook, actually. And I yeah, felt unwell. Wow. It took about a week to recover from that. But so that's it, it can kill you as well. So that's and one you see aspect it, it's, to it. It's playing out in the northern hemisphere at the moment. Absolutely. There's, you know, extreme heat and heat waves. Now there's a, a natural, uh, you know, like we name cyclones, they're naming yeah. the sort of heat wave that's going through some yeah, of these right. um, cities and countries. It's It's yeah. terrible. It is. It's terrible. The, there's, there's the immediate impact and then there's chronic illness as well. Long exposure to elevated temperatures has been linked to problems with kidneys and other, other issues about your well-being, mental health as well. So there is a huge adaptation imperative and town planners are really important here in that we've got to, you know, greenery is a big part of the solution you know, one of the most cost-effective interventions we can make with all the concrete that is getting put everywhere is to put trees out there and, you know, wrap skyscrapers in vines, start creating urban greenery is a really good way of significantly dropping temperatures. There's a lot of science that is showing us how effective that is. That's one of them. But we need other interventions. Um, you know, outdoor misting systems are becoming more commonplace and they'll be mm -hmm. part of it. Um, cool roofs uh, that that bounce a lot of the heat off, building designs that mitigate heat. Um, I think there is scope to do a lot more with electric fans as a really cost of energy effective way of reducing uh, temperatures. Mm. Uh, there's been some really good research on that. Um, you know, air conditioning is important. I tend to see air conditioning as a last resort. You know, a yep. lot has, if you're needing to turn the air con on, it's a pity because uh, a lot there's a lot we can do to to reduce the need for that sort of expense. So, so that's that's one thing that I think we're pointing towards in the report that requires the planning community, um, urban urban designers and engineers, is to think about building cities for extreme heat. The yeah. the impacts like Phoenix, Arizona, when the temperatures got really high, the airport had to be closed because. Um, when when the air gets hotter, it gets thinner and the planes need a longer runway to take off and it got to the point where they couldn't safely take off anymore. So mm. that's the nature of the impact that we, we see on, on infrastructure and critical systems. Yeah. 
Yeah, and does that go to the second point around um, leaner, cleaner, greener, or what's this sort of um, trend yeah. focusing on? So that's about all the amazing innovation we're seeing that reduces emissions but allows us to to you know find a way through this with food, water, mineral and energy resources becoming scarce relative to demand. As yeah. the population increases, we see the demand rising. The demand for electricity is spiralling. It's growing at about twice the rate of energy demand. Um, it, when BHP did their megatrends report before us, they they talked about the electrification megatrend. Cars, everything pretty much mm. is just fueling the demand for electricity. But the good news is, is that the uh, technology, especially wind and solar, keeps getting better and better. The CSIRO uh, Gen Cost report looks into the generation cost of different types of electricity, and wind and solar outperform everything now, uh, and coal and and definitely nuclear and all all forms of energy. So we can. It's because battery techno battery technology's got so good, the costs are dropping, uh, and it is becoming economic for grid deployment of battery systems. So there's a lot of scope to increase uh, generation through solar and wind. And does hydrogen fit in there? Oh, absolutely. And now hydrogen is really important as a transportation fuel, I think. So uh, yeah. for, for aviation, for, for shipping, um, it's yeah. a clean fuel. And, you know, you can make hydrogen via renewable energy. You can use the electricity to split the water, uh, H2O, into hydrogen and oxygen. Yeah. The oxygen can be released without any harm into the atmosphere. And then the hydrogen is a, is a really powerful fuel source. And it has higher energy density than lithium-ion batteries. So we can use it in planes. And, and cars, but even even the, the improvements in battery technology may see, you know, not too far out into the future, you and I might see uh, small regional commercial flights powered by electricity, which would be, you know, not jet fuel. Uh, wow. So, so there is there's different ways we can power stuff, and I think um, it's happening. Um, yeah. Probably needs to happen a bit faster, but there is a lot of innovation going on that allows us to find a way through. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And the next one's the escalating health imperative. So obviously this is, you know, in relation to the post-pandemic world and these health challenges that we're facing in terms of ageing population yeah. and, and chronic disease. What can you tell us about this that's different, yeah. you know, in this report? Well, there is some things that are the same, and that's the ageing population is continuing. Some of the yeah. rates of chronic illness, such as obesity, for example, has started to level off a little bit, but still yeah, is hugely challenging. But there still is this enormous health burden that we carry in Australia due to chronic illness, you know, related to poor diet lack of exercise and and I think increasingly lack of sleep and poor sleep patterns. This is something that we're getting more data on, but I think it is connected to some of the mental health issues. During one of the changes that has happened during COVID tragically is an increase in mental health issues. Mm. Uh, big in uh, the cities with really harsh lockdowns had this, uh, mm. where in Sydney, I understand over half of the presentations at GPs at the height of the lockdowns were for depression or anxiety. So it was really high. And I think that the aftermath of that will be with us for some time to come, but there is a, a really significant requirement to turn our attention to mental health. And um, again, the diet, exercise and sleep play a really important role in fixing that as well as some of the chronic illnesses. So as as people building our built environment and urban planners, you know, put put those things into it, of especially, you know, active transportation and and. Uh, designs that encourage people to get out and get physical. This is this is something that we know with bikeways. I've read the literature on bikeways. We know it works. Build them mm. and they do come. Mm. And uh, better, higher quality ones mean we get more people using them. But there is one of the good things that happened in COVID is there was a big uptick of people doing hiking, mountain biking, bushwalking, 
there was a decrease in certain types of organised sports because you couldn't play them because of the restrictions. Yeah. Yeah. But we saw um, physical activity actually increase for a lot of the population. And I think that was a really positive sign that we should we should uh, look at continuing too. Um, but then the, the health megatrend too uh, does, you know, unfortunately have the data on infectious disease risk. And by and large, the, the answer is it's getting a higher risk, not a lesser risk for pandemics mm. in the future. Yeah. Uh, the last 21, 20 years have seen H1N1, H1N5, SARS, MERS, Ebola, um, recently Japanese encephalitis, a really bad flu season, in addition to, of course, COVID. So that's way more than the previous 20 years. And the, the reasons, the underlying drivers are um, our population growth, urban population concentration, mass urbanisation across Asia, increased livestock production and interaction with livestock and wild animals as well by people, because that's uh, most of these diseases are zoonotic. They they transfer pathogen transfers from an animal into a human, mm. and um, that risk is elevating. So all of the jet travel is the other one that is is resuming and likely to continue at very high rates. That that just spreads the illness really quickly around the globe. So. All of the drivers are there, and I think the the critical thing is that as we look at the pandemic, we should be looking at building resiliency for future ones. Yeah. And then just to make it even more cheerful, we've put in there the story of antimicrobial drug resistance, and this is bacteria becoming resistant to the antibiotics we used to kill them. And increasingly, people will know of a relative or a friend who is, is subject to this. It, it happened to my mother-in-law not so long ago. She had an infection that the antibiotics didn't work on, and they had to try lots of different ones in different combinations, but she was in hospital a lot longer and it was a lot more painful because of that problem and mm. that is also a looming challenge this this notion of a post-antibiotic world that is is far from solved and um, is is going to require but so all of this calls on science technology innovation doing stuff smarter but we should remember that even though some of this stuff is a bit bleak and scary the ability of humanity to produce those vaccines really quickly, and Australian science played a big role in doing that. You know, we we were active in almost all the vaccine production um, aspects. We did it a hell of a lot faster than anyone could ever have expected. If you mm. remember the early dates, like March in the pandemic in 2020, we yep. didn't know if there would be a vaccine. Most no. people were probably, if you'd most scientific opinion, I think was, no, it's not going to be possible. We're just going to have to ride it out. Well, not but, something that's highly effective. I think some of the things I was yeah. listening to were saying, oh, we might be able to do something that does 60% or, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, exactly. I mean, they did amazing to do what they did in the time frame, really. That's right. And we've just gotten so much better at doing it. Yeah. Um, all sorts of technologies, including artificial intelligence, is letting us do this faster and better. So, you know, I think this whole story of the future we're putting forward is one where, you know, there is there is a way through this rip to somewhere better via science, technology, innovation, but also action, taking some action now uh, on yeah. all sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. That's a big trend. And that's one that sort of we probably wouldn't have discussed at that length, you know, 10 years ago when uh, when well, the, the, the original report came out. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I presented that material right across Australia. And one thing that always happened is infectious diseases were always put to the, that's, you know, that's kind of nice, Stefan, but it's not really that relevant to our company or yeah. it's not really that relevant to what we're doing. And I'm like, yeah. yeah you know, can be. You wait, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. And I think that's the nature of some of these disruptors is is they're not clearly relevant to you yet. Yeah. But you know, the this is the nature of the future. They they can come to the fore really quickly, uh, and have and and these global trends transmit to local implications very quickly uh, as well. 
Well, let's look at geopolitical shifts because, I mean, we're seeing yeah. a, a bit yeah. of this happening currently and it, it's, a, it's yeah. a bit unnerving, to be completely honest. So what are we seeing here? I mean, I know this was in the 10 years ago we were chatting about it as well, but what's sort of the, yeah, how would you sum this one up now? Yeah, I mean, I so I have worked with Defence a little bit on scenario planning work and this is increasingly understood the risk here around the changing power structures in the world of going from one really dominant power structure, military power, to multiple ones. Um, and it's an uneasy pathway to the future through this transition. The Australian Defence Department say the the um, uh, Asia-Pacific regions is amidst the most significant strategic realignment since World War II. And I think that's not a bad way of thinking about what's happening. It is a realignment that can go well, but there are certainly some some big issues in, in how it play, plays out. What mm. we can see is defence sector, defence expenditure rising more rapidly than ever before in most countries across the globe, including in Australia. We're going to be incre continuing to increase, and our data shows strong increases in defence spending. Um, we're seeing a desire to bring forward capabilities that might have been planned for 2035 to 2025 uh, because, you know, we kind of need it sooner. So a bit like the mm. climate change dilemma, we can't sit on our hands and watch this. We, we need to upgrade capability in all sorts of areas and a lot of countries are having that same imperative. Um, technologies are changing some of the risk profile as well. So um, hypersonic weaponry and high-speed high variable trajectory missiles uh, that we don't know where they're going to hit, what the target is until seconds or minutes before it impacts because it, it follows a, a variable trajectory. It's also incredibly difficult to knock them out of the sky before they hit. Uh, so this, this is the direction that this is a reality of the sort of military capability that we've got to be able to handle and it changes the strategic uh, play on the on the uh, like what what types of defense technology will be effective against these is, is, is sort of a challenging question uh, then 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 autonomous systems and artificial intelligence are playing an increasingly important role in in defense as well um, or I think you know there's there's reasons to be optimistic there as well in that autonomous systems might do a lot less damage to civilian populations than um, conventional armies because they don't make the same sort of mistakes that, that humans do. So, you know, it's, it's but it's a, it's a reality of a, um, a technological shift. And then the last one is cyber warfare and information warfare is, is on the rise. Mm. The cyber attacks on water infrastructure, on energy infrastructure, yeah. but also the attempts to manipulate us um, from really advanced and well-resourced players are going up a lot. COVID saw a massive uptick in cybercrime, but I think we've also seen increased um, attempts to to um, use digital technologies to to impact pretty critical infrastructure, elections, and it's a reality for the future that we're moving towards as well. So there's there's certainly challenge in this space. You know, the report does also note how much cooperation has increased between democratic countries, um, OECD yeah. countries. You know, that's not to be underplayed and how clear and quick they have been to join together and reach agreements and share resources and capability. So that is that is also something that we can see happening too. And I think, you know, 
there is a pathway through this, but it is also another reality that Australia has to come to terms with is that the sort of stability that we always were used to mm. isn't to be taken for granted and, and needs, needs a, you know, there isn't an imperative around defence capability upgrading. Yeah, okay. Well, I think you've covered some. I mean, <laughs> I'm just I'm hanging on every word because these are, you know, it, it's almost like you just don't know where the opportunities and risks will come from because there's well, there's a number of these that are out there that um, could play in either way. Um, next one is diving into digital. I think we've spoken mm -hmm. a little bit about this and I know this is a, a real passion of yours and, and our last yeah. podcast went into the potential of digital and how we really need to start harnessing it. So I'd love to mm -hmm. hear... What you've sort of found in terms of are we are we making strides towards uh, being becoming more digital? I mean, I know COVID has seen everyone, you know, with teleworking becoming much more prominent, yep. uh, but there's so much that more can be done. Yeah, there absolutely is. I think it's it's something like only um, sixteen percent of retail sales today were online in Australia, but it is growing at fifty percent per annum. It, you know, it's way faster than traditional retail. So yeah. the retail sector of the future looks quite a lot different. You know, the 2030 retail sector on the Gold Coast looks quite a lot different to what it is today, for yeah. example. But we could um, we could look at a lot of um, uh, digitisation trends, and you're exactly right. COVID has fueled it. What what has allowed a lot of people to maintain their income and jobs during COVID is their ability to take their job from the physical world and immerse it into digital. You know, the mm. sort of uh, video conference that we're on now has been critical to our productivity. And I think we're still fleshing out how significant that's been. But I think it is mm. a really significant aspect that actually changes the way regional economies work. Like if we look at the Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast, there's huge populations, workforces of teleworkers. They're, they're exporting goods and services from Australia to other countries um, over internet connections, which we yeah. don't measure yet, but mm. we should measure. They're, they're also really significant sources of economic growth and job creation, and they may have changing impacts in terms of how a city operates, right? They may cause um, uh, different transportation patterns to start to emerge, for example. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I think this is an opportunity as well to start to rethink, you know, how cities are designed and, um, you know, where the city centre is. It may not be movement in and out of a city centre. It might be a lot of different types of movement to a lot of city centres, for example. But yeah. I'm, I think that, that we haven't really thought enough about how digital technology changes the spatial configuration of land use across a city. Um, it's also a really significant employer. Um, the Tech Council of Australia estimates we're somewhere around that 800, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but around 850,000 tech workers today grows yeah. by about 400,000 to 2030. Yeah. Um, so I think check check their website to see the exact numbers, but I understand they're pretty, pretty significant in terms of growth. And it's a lot of, you know, good jobs for, for people with good salaries. Um, and, um, you know, I like a big capability upgrade that I think is happening across young and old as well in, in the space of digital. Yeah, uh, for sure. So, and I, yeah. I think it's a really interesting one because it goes to some of those other ones that you were just discussing. I mean, digital yeah. could be weaponised through the geopolitical shifts. You know, then you think about kind of how do we as planners deal with the health imperative, you know, in terms of connecting yeah. people, wanting that physical connection when we've got kind of issues yeah. around social distancing and, you know, and making sure those mental health issues are, are being yeah. resolved, you know, and, and then... You know, then you've got the kind of cleaner, greener um, 
leaner one, which, you know, I think yeah. some of that technology advancement can really help some of that, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, new fuels and, and thinking about so, that kind of net zero transition. So I mean, it just, it links to all of them, doesn't it? It does. It does. And I mean, inside all of these megatrends are these challenges. Inside defence are these, uh, sorry, opportunities. Inside def- defence is this opportunity. A lot of a lot of Australians are going to get really good jobs building yeah. our defence capabilities into the yeah. future. And they're going to range from physical infrastructure through to through to digital uh, work, you know, and similar, our energy transition, um, it also represents a lot of really good new jobs in clean tech, energy tech that that people yes. would like to have. So, yeah. you know, these problems are opportunities when viewed in a, in a different way. And then I yes. think, you know, digital will play this critical role in resiliency. You know, if we take the Gold Coast and we shock it with a pandemic, we shock it with floods and other extreme events, the ability for people to transfer their livelihoods into a digital medium yeah. is going to be one of the things that helps the city uh, withstand those sorts of shocks. Become and more I resilient. More resilient, absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, I think that's uh, part of why it is important. Um, it, yeah. So, in it, I th- we don't really haven't done enough work yet to understand the productivity benefits of digital. Mm. The fact that you know a lot of people are now not making that long commute to work every day. It, part of that time probably gets put into work time increasing Absolutely. productivity and uh, you know that's or something health, but you know maybe they're health, now going yeah. for a walk or something else well you know, and that only increases productivity as well that's it I mean my understanding is what happened in COVID is that like the local cafe near where I live um, we're sort of 6k out from the city centre in Brisbane but those ones the ones in the suburbs did really well because all of the teleworkers like me yep. didn't use their inner city cafe we started using that one instead yeah and we started walking to it and um, you know we started walking in Mount Cuthra a lot now Mount Cuthra's just been brilliant during the pandemic for us because yeah. it's it's our escape place and it's beautiful but I think those patterns of behavior are, are staying and it might be that you know we still want that human contact we still want to work with people but we might build different sorts of um, social networks for our work so yeah, we don't come local. in and work more local and they mm. might not be people that work in the same not only company but even industry you know they might mm. be from quite different walks of life but how interesting if um if this the sort of co-working center in a regional part of uh, of the gold coast for example is filled up with architects engineers historians i you, you know all sorts of different uh, skill sets wouldn't it be interesting and i wonder what that would really unlock it could be Absolutely. quite cool yeah. yeah, let's get these last two done because yep. we could we could talk about this. Uh, I think for hours. Yeah, Steph. this is uh, fascinating. I, I'm far too into it. I must admit. Um, yeah. The last, so second last one is increasingly autonomous. So this is around yep. artificial intelligence and correct. how that could transform industry sectors. That's correct. So we're doing another project on the use of artificial intelligence for science. And if you look at science and technology itself as a sector, the big thing that's going to change is AI and machine learning, the ability of the machine to recognise patterns, learn and problem solve with much reduced um, guidelines from the human user. You know, that is the thing that's got us really out of bed on um, artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Now, it's had some really significant breakthroughs in recent times. Um, AlphaFold, two, two, um, developed by DeepMind, the Google offshoot, and okay. AlphaFold was uh, one of those, and it is able to use the uh, DNA information to predict uh, the structure of a protein. Now, that's really important for vaccine production, and it does, you know, what scientific teams were doing in 10, 20, or 30 years worth of effort that was tedious and hard and 
often didn't work it's doing within you know hours or minutes you know it's doing very quickly and this is scary like i know it's an opportunity (laughs) but doesn't that freak you out just a little bit not yeah it it doesn't a little bit but i think here's the thing on ai all that stuff of arnold schwarzenegger and the terminator staring at <laughs> all those sorts of images we it's not how a lot of it really looks yeah. a lot of it is way more boring than that but yeah. still very impactful yeah. a lot of ai will be behind the sort of medical treatments you get in the future a lot of it, all these challenges we're pointing towards it's it's part of what where the human scientist has hit a wall in problem solving they're turning to this thing called ai which is able to find an optimal solution where we couldn't find one before mm-hmm. i mean another one was was nuclear fusion research which is like free energy mm-hmm. you know that that just invent, reinvents the world as you know it pretty much overnight if we if we get to it and there's some pretty serious investment in startups in in making this happen now but in January this year that's when a machine learning approach was used to control the uh, superheated plasma inside a device called a tokamak by an electromagnetic field the plasma is too hot to touch anything so you've got to hold it in a electromagnetic field and then you've got to deter and you've got to use the electromagnetic field to give that plasma the right shape to uh, house the nuclear reaction and that shape is pretty important the machine learning was able to do it better than people and um, that took us to a sustained reaction that could generate electricity better than we've ever seen and is a a significant step forward in the field so we've we've looked across all fields of science and we find this we've looked at like the share of all scientific publishing in peer-reviewed journals we see this really steep uptick in the last few years about the use of science in all fields of science and the arts and humanities it's really accelerating and it's this to me is one of the, the really exciting things about the future we're moving towards is um the 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 big boost that science is getting from ai and digital to solve some of these problems mm. yeah fascinating <laughs> last one um unlocking the human dimension so this to yeah. me seems almost in in uh contrast to the you know the ai because this is all about what uh you know what humans can do and how we can kind of um consider yeah. trust transparency fairness um, yeah. you know, inequity, governance, all of these kind of um, Im- important, you know, public trust aspects. What can you tell yeah. us here? Well, look, a lot is a lot is happening since uh, since the last report. You know, gender issues have been brought to the fore. Uh, race equality issues have been brought to the fore. Yeah. Um, these things increasingly matter and are increasingly in the spotlight. Um, so I think those sorts of considerations are of much greater importance, especially as we develop AI. Ethics is at the forefront of a lot of people's minds, and it should be. It's really important. Yeah. My team did actually write the ethics framework for artificial intelligence in Australia, a set of principles to guide the ethical development and application of AI. And I think we're mm. at the early stages of that, but it, it's it's um, happening. But also in that is trust. And I think what is an interesting question is how you get trusted information. You know, how do you decide what information to listen to online? Right now there's people listening to this podcast, but what interests me is, is how they choose this podcast and how they choose whether or not this is trusted material versus all the other ones. And we do know too that some people get caught up in social media echo cycles where they Mm. connect to an information source and then the algorithms feed them more and they self-select more until pretty soon they're caught up into a quite crazy world sometimes where they think Mm. um 
you know, some something like COVID is, is caused by Wi-Fi or something like that, and they're not getting any sort of correction. Um, there's no challenge to that information because they've closed off mm. um, accurate information sources. And I think this is one of the challenges we face in communication is how to how to share accurate and trusted and reliable information. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a huge one. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, I've got some personal experience with uh, people who have, yeah, bought into the, the Facebook cycle yeah. of, of feeding you the same information over and over yeah. again. So, uh, right. yeah, I think yeah. I think with the, you know, with the next generation becoming so impressionable with that kind of, you know, you're yeah. no longer having the conversations around the kitchen table with the families, you know, giving yeah. the different generations and hearing all of those different stories about what, you know, what they all think. You're sort of well, being fed information, yeah, through these Facebook and Instagram. Well, and we don't all watch the nightly news anymore. Like no. when, when I was a kid, we'd watch the nightly news and if there was a big thing, we'd all have seen it and we'd roughly yes. have a shared information. But we're all watching a hundred different sources yeah. of news yeah. and a lot of people just aren't catching certain yeah. things that are, are going on. And it's, it's, I don't know, there's probably positivity to it as well, but there's also some risks yeah. around information. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Okay. I'm, I'm going to leave it there because that's been an okay. awesome conversation. And I think um, we're probably blowing people's minds a bit with, <laughs> with all of that, but I'm going to leave a, a, a link to this full report in the podcast notes Thank so you, that, Nick. Everyone can uh, download it. Get those downloads up. What are we? What What's the number we're aiming for to beat the last one? A few, oh, a few I'm billion. Not sure. I'll have to. I'll have to check and get back to you. But uh, this one's looking like it is going to smash prior records. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. As it should. <laughs> okay. I think it's great. The more people that can um, that can learn about this stuff and, and understand what we're facing in terms of c- c- challenges, but also op- how we can you know spin it into yeah. opportunities because that that's what we're here for. We're all about trying to you know pave the way for the future that we want. And, you know, there's certain trends out there and they're only getting more complex. But, you know, the more we can understand them and, and kind of try and navigate our way through, the better we'll be, I think. Uh, and at you least that's the, the thing that I, I take to bed at night and that's how I can sleep well. Fantastic. Thank you so yeah. much. Really Pleasure. appreciate your time today, Steph. It's been awesome again. And uh, thank you for tuning into the Hustle & Bustle podcast this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review so that others find out about the show. You can follow the show on Instagram and LinkedIn too. That's all from the episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.